And at some point I said, no, I have to like change that. I have to start with me first. I have to be a happier individual first. Welcome to Insert Human. This is a show that is not for everyone. It's for seekers, people like you, hopefully, who are searching for solutions to your problems, the world's problems and everything in between. The conversations to come are gonna show you how finding the truth of our humanity is the magic key to solving pretty much anything. Between my monologues, my dialogues with brilliant guests, and your good questions, you're going to learn how to insert human into everything, and in doing so, realize a better life and one day a better world. I, I get goosebumps. <laughs> Thank you for doing this. Ron and I were just talking about sort of what I'm up to, what she's up to, and I think we share we share a, an aspiration and maybe even a mission to help humanity better connect with humanity, with technology, maybe even without technology. And just for those that don't know, she is a accomplished computer scientist. I don't know if that, is that how you would sort of begin to describe yourself? And also an entrepreneur, started a uh, startup called Affectiva several years ago, right? right? Yeah. And we're going we're gonna to dig into that a little bit more. And then more recently, author of an excellent book, which I just finished reading a bit ago, Girl Decoded, which I think is both a story of, of her work, but also I think for me, it was more a story of you. And, and what you've learned about you. And I want to dig into that as well. So thank you for doing this. And thank you for having on behalf me. of the listeners, uh, you're lucky people to hear what she has to say. So I just love to start with what, what got you going down the path that you are on today. Like what was, what was the trigger or was there a trigger or was it more sort of organic? Uh, how, how, did you, how did this happen? So I, I, I was born in Cairo. My parents are, I mean, we're Egyptian and my parents worked in the Middle East. So I, you know, I, I grew up around the Middle East. They're both technologists. So both my parents met actually at a COBOL programming class in the 70s. Romantic. Uh, it was very romantic. My, my dad was the instructor and my mom was probably one of the very early females to take on programming classes in the Middle East. And wow. uh, my dad hit on her. He tried to date her. She said no. So he was like, okay, I'll come propose and let's get married. And that's exactly what happened. Wow. <laughs> but we grew up in a household that was, you know, we were very kind of deeply ingrained and exposed to the latest and greatest technologies. I have two younger sisters and I have these pictures of our family playing Atari games together, like Space Invaders and whatnot. And I just remember clearly that it wasn't about the technology. It almost was like technology faded into the background. And it was about how these games or videos or whatever brought us together as a family. And, and so for me, I'm now on this mission to humanize technology. Part of it is to reimagine what a human machine interface looks like, mm. but actually fundamentally it's about human connections. It's about human to human communication. And I, you know, which is often technology mediated, right? Especially right. now with this pandemic. And I think when technology sits in the middle of this human to human connection, it's not as great. It's not right. as effective. It's not, it's emotion blind. And so I'm, I'm trying to fix that. So, uh, you know, as, as I was sharing to you, uh, with you, I'm, I'm running a book called Technology is Dead. And I talk about the gap between the advances of technology and call it the human reality. And that it mm -hmm. seems like technology has raced ahead of our own capacity to, to manage it, to steward it, to understand it. Like, how do you, do you think, do you share that view or how do you, how do you sort of think we've gotten to this kind of not ideal place. <laughs> yeah, because I think the emphasis on technology and artificial intelligence in particular, which is which is my domain of expertise, 
has been about the IQ, is the cognitive intelligence of this AI. It's how, effect, you know, how efficient is it? How productive is it going to help us be? Automation. Nobody's thinking about the human factors and, and human aspect of it. What if it made us more empathetic? What if it made us more human? What if it made us happier? Like who's thinking about the emotional intelligence of this AI? And so I talk about the marriage between the IQ and the EQ, just in the same way that human intelligence is multifaceted. And we know from our experiences that if you have higher EQs, emotional quotients, you tend to be a better partner a better professional, a better leader. You can motivate people. You can persuade them to change behavior. And I just think that that's true for our technology and our devices as well, especially ones that are so deeply ingrained in our everyday lives, like, you know, like your phone or your car or. Mm -hmm. It's funny. It's funny. When I was at Harvard running the innovation lab, you know, we did workshops for the for the, the student startups and alumni startups, but mostly student startups across all different kind of categories, industries. And I got there and I, you know, I'm a human factors person. I mean, you use that phrase. That's, that's my phrase, man. It's all about human factors. And so I'm thinking, you know, what we should do to help these startup founders be more successful with their startups is I'm going to teach a series of classes on human factors. Mm-hmm. Customer, understanding customer, right? understanding leadership, understanding employees under, you know, like it's all about the humans, stupid. They were the worst attended workshops we (laughs) ever did because the humans didn't want to believe, well, this is my theory. The humans didn't want to believe that the human factors were a factor or they didn't because human factors are actually ickier, right? (laughs) Right, right. It's actually very complex. It's very complex and hard to get it right. So it's like more complicated than the actual technology or more, you know, the EQ is actually more complicated than the IQ potentially. And so I think we've, as humans, we've done a really brilliant job of sort of, you know, putting a blind, blind eye to it or, you know, avoiding it when in fact, it's the kind of the key to the kingdom, I think. So, so okay, let's go back to your story. So, so I, how did the sort of the whole thing evolve professionally? How did, and, and when, did you, when did you decide to, to start Affectiva? What happened there? Yeah, so, so you know, after my undergraduate studying computer science and realizing that I'm really kind of drawn to this, the human-machine interface, like sitting at that boundary between humans and machines, I decided to do my PhD and ended up at, the universe, at Cambridge University, which was my first experience away from home. And I got there and, I, and again, it was an aha moment. I realized, oh my goodness, I'm spending so much time in front of this computer, but it has absolutely no idea how I'm feeling or my emotional or mental state. And, and even worse, it was my, the main conduit of my communication with my family back home, yet I felt homesick and lonely and just like really disconnected. Like, I don't know, I felt like my device created the illusion of a connection. The real human connection was not there. And so that just, I started asking questions like, what if our computer could, you know, what if computers could recognize human emotions? What would that look like? And I dove into, I'm a computer scientist, right, by background, Mm -hmm. but I had to learn the science of emotions and facial expressions and just got sucked into that universe and, and learned a lot about how do people communicate expressions and mental states and found it fascinating because 90% of how we communicate is nonverbal. It's not in the actual words we use. It's this parallel universe of eye gaze and like head gestures and facial expressions and vocal body language, right? Body language. And, and all of that is not captured at all by technology. I mean, technology is completely blind to all of this information and, and data. 
So, so um, quick, quick question there. You yeah. said the science of emotion. This is uh-huh. a, this is Chris, the stupid person. Is that a, is there a science? Like, oh, is, yeah. is it well codified, researched? There, I mean, I mean, I wouldn't say it's. I think there's a lot we haven't discovered as humans about how all this works. But for example, with the face, which is my domain expertise, there's about 45 facial muscles. And back in the 70s, Paul Ekman and his team, actually, let me like rewind even further. 200 years ago, this researcher, Duchenne, he would electrically stimulate people's facial muscles to study the expressions. We don't do that anymore, obviously. And then Charles Darwin wrote a seminal book called The Expression of Emotions in Man and Animals, which I find fascinating. I, I didn't I, know about that. I, was I, must make a, I must make a note of that. You know, it's one of the first kind of photographic scientific textbooks. So he's got like every chapter, he dives into like a specific emotion with facial, with, with actual photos. So it's like fascinating to, to watch or to, to read, I guess. This is like 1890 or something? Like, what, what? Yeah. Wow. Yeah. And wow. then Paul Ekman in the 70s, he attached, he codified every single facial muscle. So for example, when you smile, which is the lip corner pull, that's the zygomatics muscle. Or when you frown your eyebrows, which I can see you doing now, Chris. That's like, <laughs> that's like action. I'm just concentrating. <laughs> right. So, so basically he developed a system so that you can become a, a certified face reader. Takes you about a wow. hundred hours. I know it's like a hundred hours to a coder. We now just use computer vision and deep learning to automate all of that. And it's accurate. We've gotten through 20 of the 45 facial muscles. And for the ones that we're able to to read, identify, like the technology, not we, like the algorithm. It's pretty accurate. Okay, I got to tell you a story that has nothing to do with anything. Okay. So last weekend, Kate and I and two friends went down to Newport for the weekend. We're walking around and we're, you know, dutifully wearing our masks and social distancing, whatever. And I just had this random thought of like, do I look younger with my mask on or <laughs> on or off? And so we did this whole experiment and we determined that I actually look younger with my mask on, which means there's more age in the lower half of my face. Kate actually looks younger with the, with the low. (laughs) How did you, how did you AB test that? (laughs) Wow. Anyway, I just, I said, I just had to, had to, had to digress. Um, Okay. So keep, keep going. So, but yeah. So anyways, I, I, I ended up, where were we? Ta- well, I ended up kind of focusing my PhD work on building this first emotionally intelligent machine that can read your facial expressions and map it to a number of emotional and mental states. And did you have an application in mind or was more the, the just trying to crack the, turn the theory into some, you know, more found foundation? Like what yeah. was the... At that point at Cambridge, it was really about just proving that you could even build something like that. I mean, picture this. This was like 20 years ago when webcams were blurry, computers were slow. It was pre-smartphones, right? So it was a very different world. And even the fact that you can build this and hack it together was, was an unknown. So that was the focus of my work. And then towards the end of my PhD, I met Professor Rosalind Picard. She's an MIT professor who coined the term affective computing. She wrote the book, essentially positing that computers need to have emotional intelligence. So I met her towards the end of my PhD, and she invited me to join her lab as a postdoc, which is what brought me over to the United States and to MIT. And we focused on applying the technology to autism. So that was kind of the very first application I explored. 
And then I got to MIT and we quickly realized there's a lot of commercial applications of the technology and that was the impetus for spinning out. Okay. Do you think most people have emotional intelligence? That's like a loaded question. Because <laughs> you said, you know, can, technology, computers should have some level of EI or EQ or whatever. Mm-hmm. I think the opposite is also, you know, should more humans work at having more EI? Is that even possible? Like, it, is- I, I think it is. So Professor Simon Baring-Cohen at the Autism Research Center at Cambridge, he has this theory that we, on the one end, you have the systemizers, and on the other extreme end, you have the empathizers, and we all fall somewhere in between. And right. it's actually not static. Like when we're stressed and kind of really like inward looking, inward feeling, you become more of a systemizer. You're not really focused on, you're not, on what other people feel and you're not really paying attention to that. I, that's definitely true for my, my experience. Yeah, exactly, right? Sign me up. <laughs> One of my and, things is when Kate and I argue, like I'm very, you know, I've learned my, my, my greatest achievement in life is besides my children is, is learning how to feel. Like the first, it's a long story, but the first 40 years of life, my life, I was not open to my feelings and I've learned how to feel and now I'm pretty now I know how to feel my feelings and and therefore I should be capable of managing my feelings and going into difficult conversations with high empathy and not taking the bait and not you know not getting into it right nope (laughs) (laughs) no no it's so hard well you know what but this really resonates with me because even though I'm in the business of studying and teaching computers emotions. I really do think it's taken me a long, long time to feel, feel feelings like, and, yeah. and, and acknowledge it, not even to others, but even to myself, right. Yeah. To like tell myself that I don't feel great about this or I feel unhappy. Like that takes a lot of courage and a lot. Yeah. And a lot. I actually thought your book, that's one thing I loved about your book was how, as I said earlier, that it was really a, a lot of it is about you and what you were learning about you and what you were learning about relationships and, you know, what you were learning about priorities. And so, yeah, anyway, I, I didn't mean to derail you there, but I, I, I do think as much as technology needs to get more emotionally capable, I think humanity mm-hmm. could do with it, could do with a dose of it too, you know, Agreed. as hard as it is probably harder than fixing the technology problem. <laughs> Well, my hope is that emotionally enabled technology can actually help each of us become more emotionally intelligent. It could be an aid, just in the same way that, you know, there are hearing aids or you could think oh, interesting. Of, right? You can think of your smartphone as a memory aid. I don't memorize phone numbers anymore because it's all on my device. Right. So maybe an emotionally intelligent mm-hmm. could be could be our emotion, our EQ aid. It could help you have higher EQ, you know, as a partner, as a manager, as a parent. Yeah. Yeah. So, so, so you started Affectiva and what's that journey been like? Honestly, that journey has been like an emotional roller coaster, but, but that's, I think, true of a lot of startups. So we spun out with this vision to humanize technology. We recognize that the core technology has a lot of applications. And, and so the, both the chat, what, what's made this really fun, but also really kind of challenging is deciding which industries to focus on. Right. So we kind of have two business units at the moment. One where we try to measure the emotional engagement users have with content. Could be a TV show. It could be a podcast. It could be, mm-hmm. you know, a Netflix series. It could be online video ads. could be educational content, like you name it. So that's one core area that, that, 
you know, we're in 90 countries around the world. We work with a lot of the top brands. And then the other is kind of reimagining human machine interfaces with automotive being the first use case there. So getting cars to understand when drivers are distracted or tired, personalizing the riding and driving experience. And yeah, there's a lot of innovation going on in that space. Silly question maybe, but did you go to that industry or did that industry find you? Like how did that unfold? Yeah. So three years ago, we started getting a lot of like inbound interest from the top kind of Asian, I'd say Asian and European automakers. And they basically said, we've been following you guys. Can you optimize your core emotion sensing engine to work in a vehicle? And we had to do a lot of work because in the car, you know, the lighting is tough. You're driving at night. And so that was the first sign that there's a lot of interest in that industry. And then we kind of took a step back and made a strategic kind of um, analysis of, of the whole industry and, and decided that that was, you know, it was a very interesting, fast evolving, not fast evolving. I think ripe for disruption is a better, mm-hmm. better way to characterize it. Is the, is the interest around, what is it? Is it risk mitigation? Is it um, experience design? Like what are they actually after? What, what's the, what are they seeking in that capability? So in the short term, it's very much focused on safety and especially okay. driver safety, right? So again, you know, think of my 17-year-old daughter, daughter about to start driving. I know you've gone through that, so <laughs> it's, it's <laughs> You know, 33% but... of all first-year drivers have an accident. You know that, right? Oh, I did not know that. You I'm sorry. That. <laughs> it's usually benign, but they do have an accident. That, yeah, so exactly. So imagine if there is an AI coach in there that can detect signs of distraction or fatigue or, you know, right. all sorts of other unsafe behaviors. And the car can intervene in real time. It can flag that to the driver. So there's a lot of ways the car can intervene to take action. So that's the focus short term. Long term, it's actually more about the experience of the rider, of the other occupants in the vehicle. So imagine like backseat passengers, they're engaging with content. Can you, you know, if they're starting to doze off, then maybe you shut off the, you know, dim the lighting, um, oh, stop the music. Yeah, a lot of so experience design, like you, yeah, using totally. the, the, the state of the human to guide the, the surround. Experience. That's so interesting. Wow. And are you, I mean, you've been, so you've been working in that space for three years? Is that, is three that, years, yeah. And making, progress like we are we are working with i would say all of the major automakers in the world the automotive industry is kind of interesting because you start working with them but it doesn't get into production vehicles you know it's like three to five years out so we're working with all of them but it's not in any of our cars yet right right Uh, is there an application to help help an individual actually understand their own state yeah yeah. You know what I mean? Like yeah. like this morning I was I was not well. I mean, I was not terrible, but it took me like a couple hours to realize my unsettledness, mm-hmm. you know, and and then I had to like figure out why that was, which had a lot to do with reading the news. But, you know, is there is, I mean, I just think there are trillions of applications. <laughs> I know. Couples this, therapy, man. Yeah, Couples oh, therapy. Yeah, exactly. Dating app. Dating app. <laughs> no, I think, I mean, that could be like the Fitbit for emotional well-being, right? Like something that tracks your emotional state, ties it to things like your calendar and other activity and gets to know you so it knows your baseline. So if you start deviating from that, flag that to you and, and do pattern recognition on your behalf. Like, that, you know, standing meeting you have every Monday morning leaves you in a really worse state, 
maybe like do something about that or or like you know chris you look really grumpy today do you want to go out for like a 10 minute walk just to right. like you know recenter so i really think i mean i think that would be awesome if and again the tech the core technology is there it's more about how do you package it up in a way that people would want to use it it respects people's privacy right. i mean it's, it's really it really has to be crafted in a way yeah, that provides enough value for people to make this trade-off between privacy and, and, and value. Yeah, and I think the one of the things I've observed is, is it's kind of like my book. My book is painfully honest. Not, I didn't intend to write it that way, but it just, it was my truth, you know? And mm -hmm. a lot of people don't want the truth. A lot of people are uncomfortable even knowing how they're feeling or, you know, like, a, uh, so back to the sort of, how do you package it? How do you present it in a way that isn't threatening to people? Mm -hmm. Isn't. Mm -hmm. And then that, to me, the irony of that is by not embracing the truth, you ultimately, I think, suffer for it. So, so wouldn't you, aren't you better off sort of looking the truth in the face today and working through the stuff, including going for a 10 minute walk versus bearing it or suppressing it? Cause it'll, it'll rear its head at some point, wow. you know? Right. So, so, so interesting. So, so. Can I add to that? Yeah, because sure. I, I, because I, I really do think, I mean, when we, when we started the company, well, and also when I started doing this research and then later when we started the company, we got a lot of questions around, but why are you trying to do this? Like why emotions? Like why quantify emotions? We're good. We're good. Like, like we're good. Thank you. And I feel like fast forward 10, 15 years on, like where we're at now, I do feel that people recognize that our emotions influenced how we connect, how we communicate, how we make decisions, big ones, small ones, health, you know, it influences our health. So I, I, I do think we're at a moment of reckoning where we are realizing that, yeah, emotions do matter and we need to embrace them. So, well, I mean, I, I, yeah, I have two expressions that go, that completely support that, albeit just expressions. One is all major decisions in life are made emotionally. Mm -hmm. And then the other is that behavior is the root cause of all, all action and all decision-making. Right. And, and, and behavior, I think, is, a, is either a derivative of emotion or a carrier of emotion. Mm -hmm. Like for all of our attempts to be rational creatures, I think you know, our bias is an emotional bias. Absolutely. And even even the declaration of why do you need to quantify emotion is an emotional declaration. Right. Right. That is true. Yeah. <laughs> you know, like years ago, I gave a presentation to actually a bunch of uh, MIT trained engineers. And I made that statement that all major <laughs> decisions in life are made emotionally. And they, they like half of them came across the conference room table at me. <laughs> and then I pushed back and I said, just, okay, prove to me, you know, that you chose MIT, you did, a, you did a calculation on MIT versus, you know, Carnegie Mellon, or you did a calculation, uh, you know, you did a spreadsheet on the pros and cons of marrying your significant other, or you did a, you know, just prove to me that you, you've used your analytical calculating ability to make the big decisions in your life. Like, and, and none of them, you know, ugh. None of, them, none, of them, none of them could. Okay, I want to go back to when you, this roller coaster. So what have you learned about you? I mean, I, I, I've, I've learned a number of things. First is this realization that I, you know, I, I haven't always been the most emotionally attuned human being. In my book, I, I write about, you know, my marriage and then my divorce and how, ironically, I was so fixated on, on teaching computers how to read facial expressions 
I completely, completely missed that my, you know, husband at the time was miserable in our marriage. I just didn't see it. And in retrospect, it was obvious. I just, I was blind to it. Yeah. And so I, I, I talk about that openly and I feel, you know, I took a lot of relationships for granted. I also think I wasn't true to myself. What does that mean? I'm still working through that, but I just care about what pe- other, what other people think about me. And, and I think that trumps kind of how I feel about myself. It also kind of masks my true emotions. I don't even acknowledge it to myself. I'm always like, oh, like I'm going to power through this. And, and now I try to take time. I journal a lot and the, my journal is my way of expressing how I really feel. It's like a conversation with myself. Yeah. I mean, my, my, my backstory is, I mean, on the one hand, completely different and on the other hand, completely the same. So I was married before and um, I just didn't know how not present I was. And in part it's because I didn't actually know who I was in part because I didn't, I suppressed my feelings in part. Um, I was just uncomfortable with, intimacy and i was 100 percent into the company that i'd started 100 percent. you know mm-hmm. i'd go to work at four in the morning i'd come home at nine o'clock at night i'd work saturdays i was just you know and i with three little kids and and i didn't know what i didn't know and then thankfully one day i woke up at the age of 37 i think and um, and i'm like i'm lying in bed and i'm thinking this is fucked up. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. This is not right. And, and I don't know what right is, but I, I, I don't want to live like this anymore. Oh, I was triggered by I read a, a piece in fast company and, and the, uh, the writer referenced an Oliver Wendell Holmes quote who once said, who you are should come before what you do. Hmm. And hmm. I thought to myself, when I read that, I have no idea what he's saying. I, I, I I don't know what that, I don't know. I literally have no idea who I am. And, uh, you know, I ended up like you, I ended up splitting up with my uh, ex. It wasn't, it wasn't out of a lack of love or respect. I just, I needed to, I needed to figure out who I was. I think what happened is the progress that I made. And it's, you know, for me, it's profound. Like I'm, I'm close, Rana, to not needing validation. That's amazing. <laughs> close. <laughs> I've also learned right. that nobody is completely exempt from it. You know, you know, it's it's the human condition. I think, right? Like, I, I the Maslow's hierarchy. We mm-hmm. want to be. We want to feel wanted and 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 you know appreciated. But it's uh, it's been you know profound getting to my truth and also the dark of me, not, you know, it's not all peaches and cream. Like mm-hmm. my truth has still has some, some baggage and weird stuff and I'm okay with it, you know? And uh, it's an un- unbelievably liberating, liberating thing. And I guess the last thing I'd say, which is also sort of parallels your, 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 your vocation, your vocational path was in a way like a head of your human truth. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And my vocational path back then was I was in the marketing technology business, which, which was kind of about helping brands do a better job of understanding their customers. Right, right. And, and there you were. That's so interesting. Right? Like, but I didn't understand me at all. I'm like, it was all, I can help you do that, but I can't help me do this, you know? And, and the, yeah, and then I'm so grateful for, for, in a way, all hell breaking loose, which kind of, 
from your, you know, like with your husband, your ex-husband, like, you know, I think out of difficulty comes clarity a lot. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. And I, and I think as entrepreneurs and as innovators, we have to really talk about the trade-offs one makes, especially early on in the journey, like you, I mean, it sounded like you were working all hours every day. It was just all consuming all the time. It was the same for me. It was just, I could not switch Affectiva off. I mean, I'm getting a little bit better now, but it's still, it's still hard. And I just think at some point I realized that there was zero time for self-care. You know, at some point I wasn't sleeping well, I wasn't eating well, I wasn't exercising at all because I was too busy, right? And at some point I said, no, I have to like change that. I have to start with me first. I have to be a happier individual first. And when I'm a happier individual, I'll be a happier leader. I'll be a better leader, a better parent, a better kind of partner. And so like, for example, this was pre-COVID. Hopefully we'll come back to that. I, I would put my Zumba classes on my calendar for everybody at the company to see. And everybody knew you do not schedule over Rana Zumba classes or you're in trouble. And I just felt that that was important for me, but also important for my team to see that, mm-hmm. yeah, you have permission to make time, a little bit of time for yourself. Like that's key. And I don't, I feel like you don't see entrepreneurs talk about that openly. No, I think one of my other theories is that we've learned all this stuff before. We just keep forgetting it. We meaning generations right. of humans, yeah. you know, and the whole yin yang, you know, how long has that been around? You right. know, the importance of balance. Right. That's true, actually. Thousands of years, yeah. and we, well, there's a great quote by this philosopher, a German philosopher from the 19th century named George Hegel, who once said, we learn from history that we do not learn from history. That is, that is so true, actually. You just like do the same mistakes over and over again, unless you experience it in person, and then you're like, right. Yeah. Crap, like, yeah, but it's like the balance. And I, in my book, I write about the the preference of humans for the extremes, like the poles, the absolutes, and it sets up this question of you know the future of technology as being a more balanced proposition, you know, ethical AI or emotion AI, where we're bringing together the unique abilities of the technology with the unique needs, realities of the humanity. Which, in a in a form, is a is a balance, right? Right. And and I guess the the critical question is, can we, you know, be the stewards, the the balancing stewards of of technology? Can we can we hold ourselves back mm-hmm. from the seductive gains that the pure play of technology might represent in recognition? that the unintended consequences it carries or the disconnect with our humanity and it's sort of setting us backwards are too, you know, can we do that? Can we, can we do Zumba every day? Right. <laughs> can we? <laughs> well, I think, I think we just have to reframe what technology means for us and we have to take a, a more human centric approach to designing it, to developing, to deploying it. We have to think about, I mean, we have to proactively think about the unintended consequences, and I'll give you an example. So in our emotion AI kind of space, we are part of this consortium, it's called the Partnership on AI, started by all the tech giants to ensure that AI is, is, is built you know, to benefit society, and they invited a number of startups, but they also invited Amnesty International and ACLU, people we often don't interact with as technologists, like ever, Right. And we all sat around the table and we actually decided to use emotion AI as a, as a case study. And, and, and we kind of 
thought through all of the ways this can really benefit society and be transformative, right? Like mental health, well-being, et cetera, et cetera. But we also thought about where this could go terribly wrong. And we created a table, we articulated all of that. And we said, okay, here's how it can go terribly wrong. Here's how we can guard against it. And we were proactive about it. And I think this, we need, but that's not the case. I mean, A, that's not the case with a lot of technologies. And B, as a startup, you know, as a founder and as a CEO of a, of a young startup, I, I don't get brownie points for spending my energy doing that, which, which is unfortunate, right? Because I think that's, the right, that's responsible leadership, but it's not what investors are looking for. It's not necessarily what's going to make my company successful. No, it reminds me of when my last year at Harvard, I uh, spoke at a conference with Ash Carter, who's at the Belfer mm-hmm. Center. Mm-hmm. Do you know what? Do you ever met, met him? Uh, yeah, and he's he's working on this technology yeah. project. Yeah, and he he was just getting it going when I was there, and I I got him sort of involved, and I was I was just really really interested in supporting his work, and and he talks a lot about the importance of us being. I think one of his quotes was, "You we cannot slow technology, but we must do a better job of steering it." Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. Uh, and he also talked with, about what you just said, which is from a startup perspective, investors aren't interested. Right. Theirs is a short term horizon. You know, they don't care about unintended consequences 10 years out. And so how how do we, you know, begin to it's kind of back to what I said, I think, before we started recording is, is, you know, how do we how do we get create more of a collective movement around this where it's not a bunch of people on the fringe or, you know, individuals here and there, but we actually have some some scale and momentum so that the way we're managing our society is a, is a shared, there's a shared, I guess, belief system or consciousness. Yeah. How do you feel? How do I feel in general? Uh Uh-huh. Okay. (laughs) First of all, I I feel like this whole like 2020 has been just such a humbling year. Uh. I don't know. It's just like, Uh. it's brutal. (laughs) It's in the, and on the one hand, it's forced me to, really appreciate a lot of things that I, we were like, our family was just go, 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 go. In fact, when COVID hit, I was ready to launch my book and it was going to be, you know, nonstop travel between March and May. And I had to pivot to doing a virtual book tour. And so, you know, that meant that my Not kids quite were involved. The same. <laughs> Not quite the same, but, but, but I've connected with a lot more people I wouldn't have ordinarily connected to. I spent a lot more time with my kids. They were involved in the book launch. We did all oh, these fun. live. Yeah. So I don't know. I, on the one hand, it's been really tough. But on the other hand, I, I, I just feel, I don't know, I feel like grateful. Mm-hmm. And grateful and just like I have a different perspective. I'm doing a lot of soul searching too. I, I don't know if, if that's as a result of the pandemic or as a result of having written this book and the book's out now and people are reading it and mm-hmm. back out. But a lot of soul searching for sure. Um, uncomfortable. <laughs> oh, really uncomfortable. I wrote a piece of, I think it was right after the pandemic started titled From Pull to Push. Hmm. And the hmm. whole idea was pre-COVID, we were all pulled, right? Right. The seduction of the world, consumerism, mm. transaction volume, meetings, dinners, travel. I mean, it was the whole, the whole sort of construct of our lives was keeping up or responding to the pull. And then all of a sudden, there's no pull. Right. Or for most of us, most of the pull disappears. 
And so what do we replace pull with? Well, you have to replace it with push, which is each and every day you have more of a blank slate Mm -hmm. and you have more time with yourself, Mm -hmm. right? You have more time to contemplate, more time to be introspective, more time to draw on a blank piece of paper and to imagine like you have actually time to think and to feel and, and to just be. And from my perspective, that's a benefit. Obviously there are a lot of people that have, you know, not exactly that situation and are just struggling to, to put food on the table. But for, for many of us, it's actually a, uh, it's in an odd way. It's like a, it's a positive development. Although what was interesting when I, when I post that piece, I had several people contact me and say to me, how do I do it? Interesting. In part, because exactly what you just said, it's hard. You know, blankness is hard. Nothingness is hard. Having to create your own momentum is hard. Responding to pull. Right. Is, I mean, if you got a good calendar. Uh, right. Exactly. You're on autopilot and... Like, you know, just reacting. So, you know, I, I, and, I, and it goes back to, we'll sort of conclude on something you said earlier too about, you know, wanting, hoping, believing that potentially out of this terrible period of time emerges a greater shared appreciation of humanity, our humanity, of the importance of emotion, the importance of our emotion, understanding ourselves in a way like a greater grounding Right. For each of us as individuals, as families. I mean, I've had a lot of my friends. We have much friends that have kids like you or their age. And it's actually been in a, a, a family strengthening moment. Yeah. yeah. I mean, with, with difficulties for sure. Right. But at but, the core of it, yeah. I also think it's, it's I, I would really want this moment in time to help us rediscover empathy because I, I think a lot of the polarization we're seeing all over the world is, is this lack of empathy. It's an empathy crisis. Yeah. And, and I think empathy can be part of the solution to, to bring us closer. And that is a perfect way to end this little chat. Thank, Thank you so, so much. I look forward to meeting you in person one day and giving you a hug. And I just so respect the work that you have done, not just in the science, but in yourself. And, and, I, and as you said, I think one makes the other stronger, right? Like the yin and the yang go together. And uh, so thank you for me. Thank you from the listeners. Thank you from the world, because what you're doing ultimately is making, is going to make a better, a better place for a lot of people. And lastly, before we forget, Girl Decoded, available at your online bookstore, otherwise known as Amazon. Is that correct? It's available everywhere. Available everywhere. And I read it and it's a must read five stars. So uh, buy one today. Rana, thank you so much for being on the show. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks for listening today. If you're in search of more opportunities to realize positive change in your life or work, and you find what I have to say helpful, you can always subscribe to my show, check out one of my new salons. There are weekly virtual gatherings of like-minded folks. You can read some of my writings or just listen to one of the talks that I've given around the world over the last couple of years. And you can do it all at chriscolbert.com. While you're there, make sure to sign up for my ongoing email updates. When you do, you'll receive a free copy of the first chapter of my about-to-be-published book, Technology is Dead. Again, it's all available at chriscolbert.com. Thanks again for listening today, and I look forward to connecting more in the days ahead.